Well, we're joined today by Steve Ramsey and my dad, Scott Wadsworth, and we're talking about woodworking primarily. Steve has a YouTube channel, uh, Woodworking for Mere Mortals. It's been He's been doing it for a long time. He's one of the original uh, woodworking channels on YouTube, and he, he really does a great job at getting beginners started and going through a lot of the basic steps. He might be the best there is at that. So we're talking about woodworking. We also talk about YouTube a bit. We talk about the... Uh, what goes on behind the scenes, not just with YouTube, but just in general, how there's so much more happening behind the scenes than people might realize, certainly with construction. And my dad talks about the spec house in that way, some of the some of the parts of that project that, that he was dealing with that there was really no way to film and such. So lots of great stuff in this discussion. Steve's a great guy. I know you'll enjoy it. Let's get into it. First off, thanks for taking the time to to come and join us. It feels like you're the godfather of YouTube craftsmanship, one of the true originals. You've been doing it for a long time. And somehow I never got the message of what you did before you started making um, YouTube content. So could you start with that for us? Uh, sure. Thank you guys for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. It's, it's fun to talk to both of you. And yeah, I started woodworking actually... If you want to go way back, I started when I was 12 years old working with my dad. You know, I think that's kind of a common way a lot of people get into it. But before I was doing woodworking full time, this is jumping way ahead. I was a graphic designer uh, before I got into YouTube. Uh, YouTube was just kind of a way of expanding my woodworking, really, because it kind of kept me on a schedule and allowed me to turn what I was doing on the weekends into a, a full-time gig. Wow. So what kind of graphic design? Like, like um, I, I'm, I'm sure like woodworking, there's a million areas that it can be uh, <laughs> focused, but what yeah. did that mean for you? Well, it's kind of interesting how throughout my life, my different careers have all kind of led up to what I'm doing now. And I started out years ago doing photography, commercial photography. I was photographing uh, buildings, doing some model photography and headshots and these types of things, which led into uh, working at a an exhibit company where we would manufacture these big uh, trade show exhibits. You know, and a lot of those are custom exhibits that are very expensive, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars. And so my part of that was doing the printing of large format photographs or designs and by doing that and this was the, like the early days of digital printing you know because they just needed somebody who could run <laughs> the digital printers i'd already been doing you know traditional photography processing and developing but they're like hey we need somebody to do the, the digital work and i was like yeah i got a computer i know a little bit about it i'll, I'll give it a shot <laughs> it's like uh, mid, cool. mid 90s and so i just kind of fell into that job but along that way, I was able to learn how digital files work and graphic files are put together by just kind of taking them apart and uh, printing them. So eventually, uh, I was able to learn other parts of that business also, which involved a lot of woodworking to build these trade show exhibits. So it was like kind of interesting how those things all came together. And it was that some point right around 1997 that I decided, you know, I could probably do this graphic design stuff and design these things on my own. So I left that company, took a couple of clients with me. <laughs> the they, company wasn't very happy about that, but it got me, got me started. And so well, years of doing graphic design work until the uh, around 2000 eight or so and like the whole economy started tanking mm -hmm. and I was losing clients who had uh, either were outsourcing or were, were just starting to do the work in-house rather than outsourcing this type of work just to try to save some money. So and it was right around that same time that I just was on weekends making YouTube videos. And so the things sort of overlapped there. And it was fun because I was able to use some of the photography skills I had. I was able to use the design skills and bring those into that 
YouTube channel. And then it just became just kind of a natural transition to at one point, YouTube was paying money to creators and I was yeah. starting to earn more money from that than I was in my dwindling graphic design business. So right. it's interesting. It seems like today there's a lot of people have this moment where like I quit my job and I'm doing YouTube. <laughs> and for me, there was a, there was a long overlap of a few years yeah. there. But yeah. you, you described like you started making this channel, but back then people didn't think of their YouTube a channel as a channel in that way. But you know what I mean? It was like, now we think of these channels as regular scheduled content and it's quite organized, but yeah. I, or you tell me, were you, were you thinking of it at that way at that time? Like you had a, a regular audience or was it just a place to hold the videos that you made like a storage bin or how were you thinking of it at that time? Yeah, the only thing I wanted to do was document the I, my first project was a chessboard I built and I just wanted to document the process, mostly kind of for my own uh, reference so I could just see, re refer back to it as how I built the thing. Yeah. And that was really surprising when all of a sudden people started watching that thing on YouTube. And I thought, yeah. wow, this is crazy. What are these people watching this for? It was really boring. It was like seven long parts. It had, YouTube had a 10 minute time limit on videos back then. So I had to chop it all up into a bunch of different huh. parts. But there weren't a lot of guys in the woodworking. There was really just a couple of us. There was Mark Spagnolo, the Wood Whisperer, and me and Frank Howarth and a couple other people who were kind of just dabbling in just posting what we were doing. So it was it was easy to get started. Weren't a lot of people watching the videos back then. There weren't very many people on there. Well, but um, well, I don't want to change it to a downer topic, but we got it leads into it, and that is your your woodworking hobby is not a hobby anymore and i'm right. curious how that's changed for you just working with wood from being the thing you did on the weekends when you had extra time and dad you can speak to this too because yeah things do change once it becomes your job and uh i don't know youtube's a little different than that because i guess you don't have a, a boss steve like telling right. you to make cabinets but still what's that been like kind of take putting your hobby and putting it on the hot seat well, there, I think that there's a big misconception, not that it's not true for some people, but a lot of people think, you know, once you start turning a hobby into a career, you're going to start to hate that hobby. And I, I kind of think that that's people who have probably never tried to make that hobby into a career because my experience has been the opposite. I enjoy woodworking all the more since I mm -hmm. turned it into a full-time job if nothing else, then I have to kind of strategize on when my shop time is going to take place a little bit more because I'm spending so much time doing this other business related stuff that when I finally get into the shop to make something, I'm like, oh yeah, this is great. This is really yeah. what I, I want to do all along. And so for me, it's it's been great. I think the business has just uh, done really well and has enhanced my hobby. That 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 is very non-tip, at least that sounds non-typical compared to, like you mentioned, a lot of people think of it differently. And I'm my f my first sort of exposure to that was with music. So I kind of played at a semi-professional level for a short. I guess if you're paid for something, you're 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 doing it professionally, right? So by that definition, I played professionally with some teenagers for a while, and then I walked away from it, and I've just played music for fun and with my family all these years. But two of the guys that were in that band have played pro level for the last 40 years. And I talked to one of them who is still, um, as far as I know, employed by Disneyland. Hmm. And he has he lamented that he wished that he would have gotten a different job and then just continued to play music because he loved it. Because now his music has been the thing that he's done, you know, 40 or 50 or 60 hours a week. And he's had to find other creative outlets because the music's kind of at the at, in a corporate music model. You know, the creativity becomes something that the the management maybe doesn't necessarily uh, appreciate or want to pay for. They just want a saleable commodity. And so, I'm kind of putting words in his mouth a little bit. But so his experience was different, and uh, it's that's neat that you still enjoy that you still feel like woodworking can be a, a creative outlet and a relaxation, even though it has become sort of the, the, the elephant in the living room with your new <laughs> business and career. That's, that's non-typical, Steve. Good job. Yeah, probably. And it also, 
I think, you know, I do have to measure the demands of what people want to see with that. So it it's a little bit different in that I can't just willy-nilly make, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> whatever my whim is. I mean, I can, but I, I won't, it won't do much for the business. So I have to take those things into consideration, but sure. I actually enjoy doing that because it, it just gives me much more of a focus. Hmm. That's interesting. Let, Nate, let me jump in. Let me rewind the tape that you talked about. The first thing, your chessboard, you were filming it as a way to sort of uh, create a record of what you did. Right. So I encounter all the time, and my friend and men- blacksmith mentor, Sai Swan, laments all the time that he may have made something, or I have made something two or three or five or 10 years ago. And when I decide to make another one, I see what I did and I can pick it up and roll it around in my hands, but I can't quite remember how I did it. Isn't that funny? Is that the same for you? That the the Mm -hmm. creativity of solving the problem in the moment is not recorded for us somehow. I don't get that. Oh, that's an interesting thought because I think that's true. I think when we're building things, we're, we are trying to stay a step ahead. We're trying to figure out, okay, what's the next thing I need to do? How do I overcome that hurdle? And we we don't kind of mentally record those little important steps. Yeah. They're important, yeah. but they they may be really minor steps that you just have to overcome. We we're so focused on the big picture, and then once yes. we get it done, we sort of like put it all out of our minds. Yeah, yeah. You have more information true. when you're doing it too. Like when you're making that thing, you can see the inside of it. You know how the material's responding, and when you're looking at it after the fact, you're you maybe don't have as much information as the version of you so anyways i'm sure those projects dad you could definitely make them again if you started from the beginning and got through there but it'd be like a hike where you can't remember the in between and it's kind of like well it's not there anymore (laughs) that's right and and in my shop so i'm looking in your shop right now steve and it Mm -hmm. looks pretty immaculate to me okay it looks ordered (laughs) it looks it looks a little ocd which i respect but don't understand okay Uh um and I think part of at least the things that I do, the solutions to the problem are driven by whatever piece or part or tool happens to be laying within my reach in the moment, you mm-hmm. know? And the next time I'm making that, I may have, I may be working in a different place or I had picked up the shop and that piece isn't there to solve the problem. And so anyhow, it, it's been a, a quandary. Why can't I remember this stuff? So that I was intrigued by the that being the reason that you started this. And look where it's taken you. Look at look. the convergence, right? Yeah. Yeah, and about my shop too. By the way, this uh, for one thing, it, it's also a studio, so I have to kind of keep that in mind. So I've got white walls to help with the, the mm-hmm. lighting and that sort of thing. But <coughs> excuse me, I can't function in a messy work environment, I, and, and that is maybe a little bit of an OCD kind of thing. But I really need to have the tools I need and the materials I need in within reach. And I know where they are and that more importantly, tools and materials that I don't use that I haven't used in a long time to get rid of them because they're taking up space, not just in my shop, but in my brain. And it's Mm -hmm. just more clutter that uh, takes up the space. I recently cleared out, for example, I put into storage, my lathe, even though a lathe is, it's fun to turn on, but I just don't have the space for it in my shop when I'm only using it maybe once a year at best. And mm-hmm. so if I ever need to, you know, turn a few table legs, I'll get it out of storage and just bring it back here and use mm-hmm. it. So it's just, I, I like to have more of a minimalist approach to woodworking these days. Oh, that's that's cool. interesting. Go ahead, Nate. You've got um, something to say about this, I know. Well, yeah, a little bit, but maybe you can just lay that in, Steve, to my next question, which is, um, and you can speak personally as well as I feel like you're a good spokesman for YouTube woodworking in general due to your podcast and stuff, which we'll talk about. But anyways, um, what would you? what is your like favorite thing to make? What would you be making if you didn't have to record it, number one? Number two, are there trends and and types of things you see you're seeing people make you know over time that that are fun it's i i enjoy following trends myself and there's a reason why things you know get exciting because they might be kind of new like uh anyways you you can answer but what what kind of things do you like to make and also what were people making back then a lot what are people making now a lot and and what are you what are you thinking about making even if you don't have the time for it right now there's always trends in woodworking and you probably know right now there's two 
super hot trends, and that is live edge woodworking and epoxy woodworking, and blending the two of them to make large epoxy desks and tables with mm-hmm. wood. Um, and I haven't haven't done any of that because, and this kind of gets back to earlier. I, I got to keep my audience in mind, so I'll, it does kind of hold me back to doing those types of things. But I'm not that interested in doing it in in general. My focus personally, even before I started woodworking, was just to make furniture for the for the house because I enjoyed doing it. It was fun to tackle a coffee table, an end table, dining tables, um, knickknacks, you know, like spice racks, these kinds of things have always interested me. And in the earlier days of YouTube, those were the kind of projects that I would put on my channel. It would be things that I would need for my house and Mm -hmm. they would do really well on YouTube. Today, there's thousands of people making these these types of projects. So the, that sort of environment is saturated. So the trendier projects are the ones that sort of rise to the top these days or the really big and massive projects. And so right now I, I'm kind of in this, my channel has always been in kind of like a transitional phase for the last 14 years. I'm constantly <laughs> kind of changing to whatever the demands are of YouTube and what the demands are of my audience. But I actually enjoy doing that. I, I think that that's a really interesting challenge to face, you know, to stay within the parameters of a channel that's focused on beginning woodworkers. And remember, that's my key audience. People aren't looking to my channel to see me do, uh, you know, route CNC mm-hmm. shapes or, or these types of things. They're looking to get into woodworking from the very start and just need a resource for that. So everything I do is kind of focused around that narrative, which mm-hmm. I actually enjoy doing a lot. Yeah, that's really neat. I, that, that which is which links up well with keeping a relatively basic or minimal tool setup in the shop because that's probably what beginners have. So, are yeah. you thinking about that? That they're kind of watching, seeing the more standard tools in your shop, and that kind of gives them, you know, the oh yeah, like that they can do, do that also. Is that yeah, absolutely? That's part of the if I dare say part of the brand is, oh, yeah. To, <laughs> is to, yeah, keep that in mind. So I try to keep the, the affordable tools. I, I try to not get the higher end brands. I try to use the same tools I've used for years because I think people are, are, are obsessed with upgrading tools constantly when you don't really need to. A tool for the most part for the most part, tools haven't changed a lot over the years. You know, it's a motor with something that spins. And so if you if you got a tool that works for you and if you're using it on weekends as a hobbyist, there's no reason you need to keep changing these tools around. So, yeah. Can, I, can, can, can we all just pause and say a giant amen? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there's so much wisdom in that. <laughs> I, I often think of that tool manufacturers, bless their hearts, they must have consultants who work in the fishing industry and design fishing lures because they're so skilled at coloring and logoing and printing in order to make you want to grab it and pick it up and pay for it and take it home. And that, of course, is what they need to do. But the fact is, what you're doing is just doing work with a tool. And you've probably got one at home that will do it, like right now. So spend your money on wood, maybe, instead of on tools. Lots yeah, absolutely. The, the only distinction I make is between professional craftsmen and people who are working as hobbyists because the demands on the tool are going to be a lot different. And there's no reason why hobbyists who are working, even if you're just working like four days a week, that's a lot for a hobbyist, but that's not a lot because you're probably only doing a few hours at a time. And even the the most affordable tools that you could pick up at Home Depot are going to function pretty well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, related to YouTube trends and such, I think there's two things going on on YouTube, especially with these like large live edge, um, epoxy resin, like unbelievable projects. But I watch a lot of YouTube specifically cause I, I enjoy watching something that I will never do or see otherwise, <laughs> you know, like, uh, people traveling or something like I can see places and things that I'm not going to see otherwise. And I think that even applies like with 
these craftsmanship channels and like some of those big uh big slab projects like uh the blacktail guy i, I watched blacktail a couple studio of his. yeah yeah and I, I just was i was amazed i'm like this is insane i can't believe i'm watching this this guy's nuts knowing full well i'm never gonna even see that let alone do <laughs> right. that but i'm glad he is so i want so anyways there's that side of people watching just like enjoying the show and that's quite different than the people who might be watching you know how do i how, how's a dovetail even work who can explain this to me who will yeah. find one of your videos and and absorb it for a different reason right yeah i was just talking to cam from blacktail studio uh, actually earlier this week and we both were fans of back in the day a show on tv called uh american chopper and it was these guys who would build motorcycles custom motorcycles and I'm like i have never built a motorcycle in my life i well i've never ridden a motorcycle <laughs> in my life but man, it was fun to watch these guys do that. And you just get drawn into that just to watch guys like using machines you haven't seen before. They're bending metal, they're, they're yeah. shaping things. And so there's a lot to that. And I think that's definitely a YouTube trend is, is the lean back experience just to watch people, watch people do things. I don't think YouTube is a particularly good platform for step by step instruction. I mean, it, it can be, mm. but. Not if if that's something you want to make a living on YouTube doing, <laughs> you're not going to get that many people because it's a very small audience of people who really want to mm -hmm. pick up some tools and build. Mm -hmm. wow. So I got a couple questions. So um, right now, today, like for the last three hours this morning, I've been out doing a pretty massive shop renovation to make my woodworking area better. I I have we have almost not shown. Our, our friends on YouTube, my woodworking area, because it's just so rough. I've just used it in conjunction with my contracting, which has primarily been structures. So I've, I've had a couple table saws in there and I've had a chop saw and I store some stuff and it's just rough, you know, but I'm, I'm coming to a different phase of my life with a couple of different projects coming up. I, I found some white oak trees, really nice white oak trees, and I cut them down and made videos and had, had a sawmill cut them. And so in June, I'm going to get about 3,500 board feet back of CVG white oak. Really, really nice. And, and the channel will have shown people everything from it standing on its feet to now it's cut and planed and dried. And so I'm upgrading my wood shop in order to make a set of cabinets for a kitchen remodel I'm doing for my wife here. I'm I've decided I'm going to actually make some CVG white oak cabinets. Wow. I'm going to, I'm going to start with making a traditional shaker style workbench in the shop. So, and this is all content and it's all something I've long wanted to do. And it's part of renovating the wood shop right now, because I've got a big table saw coming tomorrow, um, an antique saw, different story. But my question for you is, I've never made a dovetail joint in my life. <laughs> and I've thought about them and I've seen the jigs and and so now that I'm coming up to the time where I need to decide, do I want to gear up and learn dovetails or do I want to use box joints? Okay. Mm -hmm. The box joint appeals to me because I'm going to have a couple of very nice table saws, one that's ideally suited for that. And, and I understand that and it seems like it would go faster. Should I learn to make dovetail joints in a whole bunch of drawers and corners of a big bench? Should I do that or should I do box joints or is that an unanswerable question? What do you think? I think that it's the kind of question you have to ask, what type of woodworking do you want to do? Because woodworking is a big, it's a wide field and there's all types of ways of doing that. If your goal is just to join a couple of pieces together and make it sturdy and, and functional, uh, you don't necessarily need to use any type of joinery like that, you know, especially like drawers or something you could use. A, a pocket hole screw right. would work right. fine. There, there's right. other real simple, fast. There's modern glues. They're super strong. They'll hold things together. But there's a certain satisfaction that a lot of people definitely get out of making dovetail joints, box joints, other types of joints. My particular go-to joint would just be rabbit joints on the mm -hmm. ends of boards and mm -hmm. dados in the middle. I think those are, they look, good and they're super strong and they're fairly easy to make. I think also consider how much enjoyment you get out of doing those type of things. I think most people are making dovetail joints because they enjoy the process of yes. making dovetail joints because it's like the most 
hand to wood kind of thing you can do. It's all based on skill and you can improve that skill by doing it over and over and getting better and better at it. And there's, there's minute ways you can adjust dovetails to fit different scenarios that you're working with. And so I think it's a, it's a point of pride for a lot of people to do that. So it is also a very structurally sound joint and it's great for when people come over and look at those cabinets, you can say, there look you go. at my dovetail joints. That's it. That's it. <laughs> and, and the other part of my calculation is I've got grandsons. I have grandsons that are rapidly getting big enough to be in the shop. And so I'm thinking, well, you know, what, what would it be that I would want to introduce them to as they watch me do it? You know, and, and more introductory. I'm kind of leaning to the box joint because I can teach these grandsons to do a box joint. And number one, I can figure it out. And then I can teach them and they'll get that satisfaction. And then maybe it'll leave room for them to move forward. I don't know, but that's what I'm wrestling with. Well, I've made, I've made both types of joints and it's been years since I've cut a dovetail joint. And I've done two different ways, hand, hand cut dovetails and using a router and a dovetail jig that you can mm -hmm. buy. And almost everybody I've talked to, and my opinion is also the same, that it's just easier to do them by hand than to try to fool with those jigs. Mm. They, oh, no those kidding. jigs can be really frustrating. And I swear, every time I used that thing, I would have to get out the manual and re relearn the whole yeah. thing because it was mm. just so confusing. And I, I didn't allow me the kind of freedom I would have by hand cutting mm. those dovetails. But it's very... It can yeah, be very that makes sense. The learning curve, though, is different on the on the hand cut. <laughs> Vertical. Vertical, man. Yeah. Um, Steve, you've taught a lot of people. I know like through courses and indirectly, but you really have a, a, a lot of graduates, let's say people who you've helped pick up woodworking. Have you taken away and what what did what do you think is the biggest barrier that is keeping a lot of people from starting? So maybe from your past students, what what is it that keeps the common man who wants to do woodworking, who's watching it on YouTube? Um, from actually doing it? Or is, is there one thing? Well, I think there's a couple of things. Uh, first, they don't think that they have the time to do it because I think a lot of people are the, of the assumption that, well, woodworking is going to take years of you know tedious practice to just get to the point where I can just build a simple box or something like that. And with modern power tools, and that's my courses are focused on power tool woodworking because that's what most people today are interested in. And I consider that mm -hmm. as sort of the new traditional woodworking is mm -hmm. power tool woodworking. But with that, you can get up to speed pretty quick and build some projects without a whole lot of learning involved. And the other thing I think people there's a misconception that you're going to have to have a lot of space too, because we see this a lot, especially on YouTube of guys have these really, really big shops and you really don't need all of that space. I, I like to talk about when we lived in San Francisco for 10 years and I would just haul tools up to the, the roof of our apartment building and I'd put an extension cord through wow. our window up there. And I was able to build a circular saw jigsaw, drills and, and just build some really cool stuff up there. So it doesn't take a lot of space. And then the, the last thing I think that people are afraid of is that it's just going to cost you a lot of money. I'll get comments on, I mean, I've got the most basic set of tools in my shop, but sometimes people will come in who don't really know a lot about it and they'll say, well, that's easy for you to do with a hundred thousand dollars worth of tools there. <laughs> I'm like, well, you don't, that's not true. It's, it's, it's very affordable. Yeah, that's the comment they just throw at every woodworker, but they yeah. threw the wrong guy this time. <laughs> there are guys with a hundred thousand right. dollars worth of tools and much more, but not not here. Yeah, that makes sense. I got it's gotta be I've I've experienced it in other areas, but when someone starts and learns something that they never thought they could, just that that feeling, you probably get kind of energized hearing from your students and people who maybe had a lot of those concerns and finally yeah. just kind of dig in and next oh, thing they know they, they it's made fantastic. a fantastic. There is, is no That's better feeling that I've gotten from the, the feedback I've received from people who have learned woodworking directly from my courses. It's much better even than good, the comments I received from YouTube is just because these people are really focused on what they're wanting to do. And I'll hear from them all the time. They're like, wow, you know, I had really never held a hammer before in my life. And now I've made it, I've made a coffee table. Some people have even gone on and are making 
things that they're selling on Etsy or at crafts fairs. And so they're actually turning this into some income, which is just so cool mm-hmm. to see. Yeah. I, uh, I, for a lot of years, I would see people selling like a course or something online. And I would, my instinct was always, well, I guarantee you that information is on YouTube. And so I'm just going to go find it there and save myself the money. And that's, that's certainly true. And then I, I purchased a few courses around actually our channel for how to solve like computer problems and, and design problems and things like that. And, and we've since made a course. And so I can speak to it from behind the scenes also, but it is so different when, when you are, when you're not trying to like keep somebody's attention with YouTube, like we got to get to the point we can't, yep. you know, when you're not balancing, like how much detail for the common man, da, da, da. And you know, the person wants like the real deep dive because they paid a few bucks for it. Um, you get so much, such better, uh, instruction. And so I, I haven't taken your woodworking course, but like I said, I've taken other courses and for anybody who's, who's wrestling with that question, like all the information is on YouTube. It certainly is, but you got to really filter through a lot of, um, I don't know, just time to get to like the part you actually need in the right order. And so I could see you having students who are kind of like, wow, that's that, that was the yeah, it's very Help scattered. I'm, I'm sure you're aware of that with your blacksmith course, you know, that just being able to do it in a structured manner that it's like, okay, you don't have to be searching all over YouTube to learn how to do, learn some blacksmith skills. I'm going to show you exactly step by step how to get through it. And I think that appeals to a lot of people. Yeah. Have you it's built because, and been, oh, go ahead, Dan. We'll, we'll, it, because like you mentioned, a lot of people have, have sort of created these, um, barriers. They have psych- they build up psychological barriers and they think, well, I just can't do that. And just the act of um, getting a hold of a course breaks down a lot of those barriers. I mean, yeah. if, if a person just takes that step, and of course, at some level, what I'm doing right now is advertising for our courses, right? But in a very real way, just the act of buying for a few bucks a course wipes out a lot of the um, inertia that you have that you've been putting off starting. And as soon as you do that, not only have you begun to generate some momentum, but like you guys just described, the answers to your questions, even the questions you didn't know you had, are at your fingertips in a systematic uh, series of answers to the things that you're going to want to ask. And just about the time you want to ask the question, there's the answer. And like you said, Nate, that saves a ton of -hmm. sifting through the static that's out there to find the information you need. Yeah. And I think, Nate, you made a good point when you said that, you know, to put that stuff, and that's why kind of I was saying earlier, YouTube isn't really the greatest place to teach step-by-step instruction is because what, getting back to what you said, where you have to keep that pace going fast on a YouTube video. And in my courses, I can actually, I actually have a thing. I think, I think we call it like real, real time or something like that, where there's certain procedures like cutting a certain type of a, a cut on a table saw or something where I think it's valuable to see how long that actually takes and how the actual feed rate that you should be putting that board through. And these are all kind of things that that may be a 45 second shot mm-hmm. of just putting wood through a table saw, yep. which you can't, you can't do that on YouTube. No, no, <laughs> nobody yeah. wants to watch a 45 second shot of, of sawing a board. But I think that that kind of stuff is important to show people that it's not all high speed and you've yeah. got to take your time on certain things. Yeah. That's, that's one of the things you definitely learn when you're in someone's shop and you see them do a cut like the, the, like in a table saw, maybe they pause for, I don't know, a little while to like resituate right. or walk around the saw and they like take, I don't know, take their coat or put, I don't know, whatever it is knowing that it's okay to like do that like oh i can take a breather here or whatever the case may be but a lot of times you pick things up in person that are just satellite to what the main (laughs) point is and so yeah in a high speed edit those things are definitely toast and and, so all of this all of this is so right on and it includes the sound of what's happening in the shop right you need to be able to hear what it sounds like when your table saw is starting to labor you need mm-hmm. to be able to hear yeah. what it sounds like when you have timber bind pinching down on the saw. And the first way you recognize this is not that it's trying to throw the board back into your lap, but you can hear this RPM yeah. beginning yeah. to drop off. Um, you, <laughs> you need to, yeah. And so there's no other way but to have it in real time. So you're seeing the feed rate and hearing the sound of a well-tuned sharp saw. So I couldn't agree more. It's really I, important. I think a lot of people don't understand really what 
until you're doing it, what shop time time spent in your workshop is really like because if, if you're only seeing a few minutes on YouTube videos, you think it's all build it, build, build, build. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of my time is is just standing around, kind yeah. of figuring out what I'm going to do next, how I'm going to approach it. It's moving things around. There's a lot of just this mundane stuff that happens or even just coming out first thing in the morning with a cup of coffee and thinking about what mm-hmm. I'm going to do. All of that kind of makes for a really enjoyable shop experience that's beyond just making those cuts and putting something yeah, together. So true. We spend a lot of time looking for tools, which... Uh... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you got to get this minimalist shop here. <laughs> oh, oh, that only hurts because it's true. It's true. Yeah. Oh. Probably that's no way to film that and make it like helpful for people. So. That's a hard one. Well, you set things down. And you're like, I just had this thing. Where is it? Yeah, <laughs> so, exactly. Steve, you, you don't have any shop gremlins? You don't have any gremlins in your oh, shop that mysteriously move things and put them in hidden places? Yeah. You know, the gremlins that drive me the craziest is when I drop a screw. And for some reason, <laughs> it's like socks in a dryer. They vanish. I, yeah. I can hear it fall on the floor. Yeah. And then yeah. where to go? I don't yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> I'll find it like, you know, 15 feet away or something on a later yeah. day. I'm like, oh, there's that screw. How did that happen? Is How it just supercharged? That's cool. Um, Steve, have you been involved and gotten like spread out past woodworking to remodels and construction or metalworking or other areas of craftsmanship that you are interested in? Or are you really satisfied just, you know, being inside your wood shop working? Yeah, I'm pretty happy with just uh, kind of staying in my lane. It seems to work pretty well. I've dabbled a little bit in, in other materials and I've brought those into my channel from time to time, but it's definitely uh, not my focus. Yeah. Okay. I've got a couple technical questions. Okay. So I read it. I don't know where, I don't remember if it was on a another YouTube channel. I don't think so. About the tempering process of hardwood in drying and how inappropriate drying um, uh, processes can temper hardwood inappropriately and put too much tension in the board. Now, I read it and I wanted to call baloney on that because I have always just understood it as the tension that exists in the board because of the tension that existed in the tree and the way that it's released according to the orientation of the grain, you know, slab grain, rift sawn, quarter sawn, vertical grain. And, and, and sometimes a, a board is just timber bound and it will spread and sometimes it'll pinch. Right. Do you have, have you thought of, learned about, dealt with, or believe that the drying process can increase or reduce tension in the board? I think it probably can to a certain degree, depending on, I think, the speed of that drying process. I know that sometimes kiln-dried lumber could dry at different rates throughout the board, and that's kind of the cause of why you get so many of these twisted, Mm -hmm. warped boards. Uh, But I know there's guys who do, you know, cut their own slabs, Mm -hmm. and they don't put a whole lot of effort into just, you know, you put some sticklers in, in between all the boards mm-hmm. and you stack them up and wait a couple of years. And they're, yeah. They're and, and so I, I have some experience with that. I had a sawmill. I've played with sawmills and I, there's a local company that planes and dries and they have a very specific process of air drying at the rate of about one year per inch of board per thickness inch. and right. then kiln drying. And their product has always been good, you know, yeah. and, but my experience with a sawmill and a table saw is that there are, you can take a green board and sometimes it, the tension in a green board, no drying involved, will have that board moving all over the place as it goes through the saw. So anyhow, I was just, I was just curious about your take on that. And then the follow-up technical question is, I'm thinking about putting some dust collection in my wood shop. Mm-hmm. Do you have dust collection and how much, if you do, how much attention should a guy pay to it? And if not, is a, a bench brush and a broom and a dustpan and a garbage can enough? What do you think? <laughs> I don't think it's quite enough unless you're unless you're working That's with the hand tools. Job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you're working with hand tools, yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the appeals of people who there's a there's pretty large hand tool movement right now of people who just, you know, use chisels and saws, hand saws and these sort of things. And it's very, very safe to just use the broom and a dustpan. But like I said, most of us are probably using power tools. And in my shop, I use a shop vac with a, um, what do you call those cyclones? 
attached to it that separates it's a separator mm-hmm. separate the larger chips and so i've got like a stand that i move around from tool to tool and that oh. works great in my shop because i've got lots of air ventilation between the door and the garage door uh if you're working in a larger shop and you are doing a lot of woodworking I would suggest definitely a de- dedicated dust collection unit that you can set up somewhere and run tubes and connectors to each individual tool. But then you can't move your tools around. And I'm always like moving my saw right. into a different place. So right. those are sort of the two different approaches. And it depends. I think a lot of it depends upon how much uh, woodworking you're going to be doing because dust collection. I look at it first and foremost as not a nuisance issue, but a health issue. And I think it's uh, real important to not be breathing in, especially the fine particles of dust. So in addition to having the shop vac hooked up to my tools, I have an air cleaner, I guess you call it, (laughs) up Mm. above that's running all the time. And I wear a filtration mask and the other thing to keep in mind is after you're cutting wood, that fine particles of dust can linger in the air for a couple of hours. So even though you may not see it, and the, it's those particles you can't see that could be very harmful to your lungs. So I take all of that stuff real seriously. Wow. Oh, I stand convicted. Okay, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to do? What, what, what is, oh, what I don't know. Like? My whole shop is just a dust bowl. I mean, I... I blacksmith, I use coal, I, I grind, I weld, and then I, you know, I run saws all the time and I run a planer and I, you know, but, and so I, I just have a layer of dust. You know, your comment about your white walls, the only thing that's white in my shop is the soapstone that I use to mark the steel that I'm welding. That's it. Nothing else is white. (laughs) And so I, I have some, I have some changes to make in this wood shop area. Think of your health more than anything. That should <laughs> yeah, be driving force. So, Steve, this is, I can't say it's new, but I just want to emphasize. In other words, even though the wood sawdust smells nice and it feels like a wood shop and it doesn't hurt when you're breathing it, um, you don't want to breathe it. And you, you are, you're wearing a respirator or a mask of some sort, kind of yeah. just as standard practice? I do, because the the... The dust that you see is actually pretty harmless because if you see it floating around, your body is really good at kind of filtering that out and not and not harming you. But I think it's under like five microns or something. There's an actual size where mm-hmm. uh, it needs to be filtered out. Otherwise, you are going to be breathing that in. And over time, again, this is a cumulative, cumulative sure. kind of thing. So it's a, yeah. um, you know, if you're only doing a few saw cuts at a time, I guess roll the dice. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. But if you're going to like build a woodworking hobby, then get that I would habit and yeah. nail it down and wear the mask and save Yeah, I consider uh, I consider wearing a dust mask, a filtration mask as important as wearing safety goggles, eyewear, and hearing protection too. All three of those things I wear at the same time because I for one thing, I just can't stand really loud noises and it just it, mm-hmm. it's just jarring to turn on a table saw and or you know a router is there anything louder than a router you know <laughs> so they I have a nasty that. pitch they have a they nasty do. nasty pitch <laughs> oh that's really cool i'm really glad to hear you say that and share that because we we don't we don't don't really no. go out of our way to well we just don't know much about safety and health honestly at least this this layer we just kind of crash through and do it a little more and, and it's a different it's a difference in upbringing. I mean, of yeah. time frame and up upbringing, and I, I've I've done rough work all of my life. You know, mm-hmm. logging and heavy construction and and uh, self employment, and so it's just been easy for me to consider my body, treat my body like rented equipment, right? Yeah. And so that that's a habit that I'm I'm gradually working on overcoming. Well, and you know, I, being outside is a big help. And when you're outside, a lot yeah. of those fine particles are blown away or they're mm-hmm. gone when you yeah. walk a little bit. So it's, it's, if you're yeah. inside, it's a little bit of a having adequate point. ventilation is huge. Yes. Yeah. But and Scott, I have you that. know, you're, you're right. I remember when I was a kid, now I'm 55 years old. And when I was a kid working with my dad, I don't remember him ever wearing no. 
any safety gear, no safety glasses, no hearing protection, certainly no, no breathing protection. Nope. That that's a luxury that comes with affluence. I mean, in in a life, in a life where, (laughs) where survival is the question, then personal protective equipment is not even on the list, you know? And so it's, it's just a, it comes with affluence and predictability and stability and those kinds of things. So you got to get to make those hand cut dovetails. Those are safe as can be because you're not going to be breathing <laughs> in anything. That's right. <laughs> Just a handsaw and let the dust fall where it will. Um, Steve, you've done a great job. And I want to talk about YouTube a little and your podcast and such, because you've been doing it long enough. And like you said, it's been in felt maybe in flux or transition and it's been in transition the whole time. And you've done a really yeah. good job of sort of adjusting and paying attention and keeping track of what's going on. So first of all, um, what have you learned from talking to so many other YouTube channels and other woodworking channels over the last couple of years? You have two podcasts that where you're paying attention to that. Can you just kind of distill what some of the things you've learned from talking to all these folks and what's going on with YouTube? Maybe talk about YouTube as a timeline. What happened? What was the first phase like? Phase two, phase three, and where <laughs> we're at now? And what, Yeah, what I, sort of feel, I, I sort of like to think of YouTube as... There was the early years when I started in 2008 where it was just a free-for-all. And most people were just putting videos on there for fun and just sharing their experiences. And then YouTube quickly grew into what I consider kind of the golden age of YouTube. And I think a lot of longtime YouTubers would also agree that about 2015 and 16 was kind of peak YouTube mm-hmm. when everything was kind of firing on all cylinders. People were joining the platform, viewers were watching, and people were making money off of the platform. Sponsors were coming in. And there was sort of a community of YouTube that YouTubers kind of knew each other in a certain sense and would collaborate and do things together. And today, YouTube is much more, I guess, in a way, corporate, and it's more business focused. And I think people, you know, it's the number one job that kids state they want now is to be a YouTuber. And so people are coming in, and even in the maker DIY, you know, woodworking community, they come in with pretty full game plans from the start. They know how they're going to set up a channel. They have a whole team in place. They've got production. So I think. YouTube is starting to look a lot more like television these days, mm-hmm. but I think there's still room for people who just want to post projects that they're making, post things they do for fun. So there, it is a balance there. And for my channel, it's always been, I think part of my job is to stay on top of YouTube trends and what's going on and with the different types of formats, the different features that YouTube offers and being willing to experiment with those. Because what happens is if you don't try out the new things, don't experiment with new ways of telling stories on your channel, it will get dry and stale and people will tune away to something more interesting and so it is it's all about evolving and changing for me it it works well because i can change the channel let it evolve and grow while still keeping my primary focus and mission to teach beginning woodworkers so that always kind of keeps it keeps it grounded yeah um you've you've done a good job and like you said new tools youtube's putting out but youtube shorts are 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 one of those. And I, I've enjoyed you making those as well. So I guess, I guess the very fact that you started YouTube back in the day, you're, you're kind of wired to try new things and, and test out platforms and stuff. So that, that's certainly one you've been testing. And and to your point about what I've kind of learned from interviewing so many different YouTubers is that everybody doesn't matter the channel size, doesn't matter how many followers or how long you've been it, been doing it everybody shares the same concerns and fears and hesitation about what they're doing. Everybody I've talked to has a little bit of hesitation before pushing that publish button 
about, did I forget something? Did I say something wrong? Are, is, are people going to call me out on something? All, everybody is kind of the same that way. It's really refreshing in a way to talk to people who have, who I think are just huge on this platform and to hear that they're, wow, they're just doing the exact same thing I'm doing. They just have a bigger audience. You know, it's mm-hmm. interesting. That is interesting. Um, it definitely, well, I guess you can answer this also, but any video project, you see the finished video and you just instantly assume like, oh, Steve just held the camera up and he just kind of ripped that out of his back pocket, you know, <laughs> you know, no prep, yeah. but like all TV and video and, and like all woodworking and construction, there is just so much behind the scenes. Like on our house building project, dad, you could probably, you should probably, we should probably talk about this more, but just the amount of time you spent like staring at the plans at home. Yeah. <laughs> And like writing yeah. down notes and measurements, yeah. there was there wasn't a way that we could make a video about that, or maybe we could, I don't know. But but anyways, people don't realize it, or it's very difficult to to put that through to the to the people on the other side. And it's not just YouTube. Like I said, builders when they go home, that's what they're doing is thinking about. It. I'm sure a lot of trades are that way, but certainly um, with YouTube. So anyways, um, Dad, you could speak to that first, and then Steve, I want to hear if you if if you have a team helping you or how how you're kind of production has evolved sure. over the years. So I, I met my wife, I, I met Kelly, my wife, when I was 15. And one of the things, and she was 15, and it was, it's been that sort of a storybook thing, and it's been great. But one of the hardest things for her in our marriage is there's so much time when I will be in a space where she is and just be completely distant, completely unplugged from my immediate circumstances. And what I'm doing is building something in my head and, or I'm engineering is an ostentatious term for a carpenter to use in reference to his thought process. Right. But in reality, I spend lots of time waking hours. And when I'm laying in bed and when I wake up first thing in the morning, just going over in my mind and doing piece counts and how am I going to stage the material and how am I going to get onto the site? And how is that tool going to be fixed? And, uh, you're right. None of that can be shown or even represented, I don't think. But the truth is, if you if you if you can't do that, you're at a strategic disadvantage in terms of the business. And if you don't enjoy doing that, you're probably not going to enjoy these areas of effort. You're probably not going to enjoy woodworking if you don't enjoy standing in your shop or in some space and visualizing visualizing the process of making that mortise and visualizing the process of digging that tenon out just perfectly and visualizing what am I going to do to keep the back of that from blowing out when my drill bit emerges and all those things that when you're starting out are new and when you're experienced are automatic but still have to be accounted for. And so that whole process of creating something mentally before you ever pick up a tool, is uh, it's important that you have the, the time and the interest. And what I try to tell people periodically is a key skill in construction and woodworking is to be able to suspend a problem in your brain and rotate it and look at it from every possible angle and not to just content yourself with the first perspective and go in that direction, but rotate the thing completely all the time and try to develop the best solution based on that process. And I'm not sure if that answered what you were just talking about, but it takes time to do that. Yeah, I think that that's a big part of all building construction maker jobs is thinking and it's the downtime that's real important to what you're doing. And speaking of YouTube features, they had 360, 360 degree videos a few years back. And I remember thinking about that as like, well, do you sit that up in, in my shop maybe and do a live stream? But I thought, how boring would that be? Because most of the live stream of me building something is literally standing around walking from one point to another. (laughs) There's very little highlights of things that are actually happening, which is what you could do with an edited video. Like that's why most live streams aren't actually showing people making things. It's people talking about what they're, what they're making. And I also think that as with any of these professions, preparation is so much of the work. And I always like to think of painting a house, how 90 to 95% of painting that house is preparation. And if you don't spend the time preparing that correctly, 
it's going to take you more time altogether because you're going to have to fix mistakes. But yep. you have to do all of this labor ahead of time to get to the fun part yep. <laughs> where you actually get to spray the, the paint on the house. And that goes by very quickly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So con continuing to riff on this, um, I, something I learned about in a construction management seminar in Las Vegas was job sampling, that there are people, and you, you guys may know about this, there are consultants you can hire that will come out and watch your work site, watch your crew working, and job sample on a very specific, um, every, every so often, on a predetermined amount of time, they will see what everyone is doing. And then they will use that to determine what percentage of the workday is used in being productive and what percentage of the workday is either thrown away or wasted or used in preparation or thought. And job sampling is a good way to know how efficient um, your labor crew is. Um, and it's like your comment about most of what we do is walk around our shop from the first task to the next. And in construction, Unlike, I think your accurate number on painting where 90% of a paint job is a prep, in construction, 80% of the work is simply handling the material. <laughs> yeah. Simply handling the material. Staging and handling material is 80% of the work. And so that's the first place that you have to start thinking about your process and your efficiency and, and whether or not what you're doing is the right thing is simply how the material is dealt with and stored and moved and loaded and stacked and protected and, and staged. And, and uh, how do you capture that in a video? Well, yeah, you can't, you know, you could do a quick little, a quick little shot here and there. You can say that, well, a lot of time was spent doing this, but it never conveys really the labor that goes into that. I think in general, in most of the trades, people don't understand how much labor is involved, yeah. manual labor, even using power tools in a trade, there's still so much manual labor. If it is just moving materials around or climbing ladders or anything. Yep. Yeah. I, this is the same concept. It's almost like we have to constantly remind ourselves in this day and age where everything is at our fingertips, whether it's information, whether it's ordering products on Amazon that kind of show up instantly. And even I felt this, you know, so it's understanding what it takes for those things to, to be there. But I've like experienced this where I meet an, a person like maybe older than me who's successful or has a lifestyle or something that I'm, I'm like, oh, it's amazing. And the instinct is to just assume that they've kind of either always had it or that's just the way it is. You just can't see all the years and the stress and all that like behind the scenes. So it's almost like a, a good habit to to build, to not take every single thing as yeah. maybe not face value, but just deeply understand that there's, there's much underneath the surface. There's, there's stuff underneath the surface of everything. And the shiny surface is literally just the shiny surface, whether it's yeah. content or, you know, I, in fact, one of my kids the other day, I can't remember what we ordered on Amazon. And I kind of casually mentioned that somebody made it. And it was like, she, my daughter was just like, she's like, what? Somebody made that? It was like a yeah. electronic thing or plastic, or I can't remember, but um, this is, you, know, uh, you don't you don't realize that until you kind of like think about it a little bit. It's something that weighs on me a lot is trying to convey the benefit of manual labor to young people because they don't yes. really see a lot of it. And I think that in general, there's a lot of parts of our culture and society that are suffering right now because we're not encouraging people to do these kind of jobs and this kind of manual labor. And we're, we're so hell-bent on teaching STEM to every child that it's only like science and math are the, the highest aspirations and you must do science and math and that we've kind of treating manual jobs and craft jobs and trades as kind of like a, a, an afterthought like well if you don't do good in science or math I guess you yeah. can do one of those jobs. It's like a threat or else, do it or else you're going right. to Right. We should really jobs. be encouraging these kind of jobs, especially yeah. now because there's more demand than ever for carpenters. Mm -hmm. you, know. you know, I, uh, I have, uh, my worldview is deeply religious and I have often thought that the, the phrase in the sweat of thy brow, thou shalt eat thy bread was not a curse at all but it was a lifeline that God was throwing us. It is not just therapeutic, but I think it is vitally important to labor 
at some point, in some way, it, on some regular sort of a cycle in life, if you're not laboring, man, there's some big part of who we are as humans that is not developing, or at least is not getting stronger. And uh, I, I could not agree more that it is a cha- the challenge of the 21st century, and maybe it should have been the challenge of the second half of the 20th century, how to teach young people to labor and to find satisfaction in it. I, I think you put your finger on a very, very important point. Yeah, it's um, a shame that we're we're not doing any more of that, and I think that we're going to start to feel repercussions of that yeah. sooner than later. Yeah. Um, well, Steve, you got two great podcasts. Um, one of them you're interviewing woodworkers and uh, other YouTubers who are in this exact niche. The other one you're talking uh, with uh, is it is Chad your co-host? Yeah, Chad Rails. Okay. Yeah, we just talked to YouTubers at of, large. You know, yeah, there. they're both really great. I've enjoyed them, and then Thank of course you. your channel, like we've been um, discussing, we'll link to all of these. And um, and for those of you who are interested in woodworking, which is most of us, it really is. There's a reason. It's like the on-ramp to a lot of craftsmanship Definitely. woods in everything it's it's applied in every craft after you're done with wood it's the tools are like the basic tools it really is like the ultimate starting point for having a having a craftsmanship hobby and lifestyle it seems like so um your your material is probably the best there is on getting started on that is there anything else we're forgetting or we should hit before we leave from either one of you you guys gonna join me on my podcast sometime <laughs> I'm gonna put we'd, you on the spot. Yeah, we'd be happy to. We you, would love any, to. Any, anything you want to do. do this, is, this is our yeah. life now. So yeah, we're, that'd be fun. We're uh, yeah. we're, we're we're willing to try it all. Although I we've have done a, a lot of. I have shorts, a feeling yeah. we would have plenty to talk about. I think so. Yeah, it's a pleasure, Steve. It's just been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank, Thank you. you for taking my phone call. What three years ago now? When we right. were <laughs> starting in that in that other venture, I appreciate yeah. that very much. You're oh, a generous sure. soul. Yeah, Thank you for that. Yeah. All right. Well, have a great day, Steve. Dad, have a good one. And everyone, we'll catch you next time. Check the the description for all the links to Steve's content. And it'll be fun to keep track of where you're going next. I really do follow your stuff because I feel like you're doing all the research and paying attention and keeping your finger on the pulse. So um, this this is the place to look. All right, everybody. We'll catch you next time.